0: Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925, the first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L E C R E U S E T.com. I'm HRN's communications director Kat Johnson with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. It's Thanksgiving, so we're talking turkey with sweet potato casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pecan pie. But we're also discovering some surprising truths about this holiday.
1: As it turns out, roasted turkeys are actually nowhere near the original Thanksgiving tables. In fact, most of the foods we eat for Thanksgiving today weren't eaten in Plymouth.
0: And you know, a lot of
1: the dishes came about, well, because of the products that were on the shelves and the marketing that told us this is the product we should use.
0: Every once in a while, though, the consumer creates the food trend. Care to top the turducken, anyone?
1: I've got to give credit to
2: this fellow that said this is the best pile of meat I've ever had and then said, what if you added bacon?
0: Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: You're listening to In The Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. I am your host, Joe Campanelli. And when I'm not hosting In The Drink, you can find me usually at Fausto. Uh, Sometimes I stop by Celestine, where I'm also a partner. Um, And uh, I also work on a little wine project called Anona. So check that out, please. Uh, Enough about me. I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, I think we are three-peating here uh, for sure. Uh, someone who I do I get I, a
2: jacket. Is that the,
1: it's the
2: <laughs> the Saturday Night Live the five peat jacket. The
1: five peat jacket. Talia Vailakee. Okay,
2: so I, I'm putting a request in that on my fifth visit, I get a jacket.
1: Okay, yeah. a drinking jacket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, you, we'll, we'll make one for you. Great, you deserve it. Um, yeah, so Talia's here. She's she's back. She is the uh, editor in chief of Punch. Um, she is the author co author of several books, including Sherry. And Spritz and uh, Punch is putting out a series of books. uh, They recently put out a a beautiful. Uh, I think this is the perfect gift for the holidays. Everyone should get one. It's called the mini bar. Um, so I want to talk with Talia about, uh, about her, her new series of books and, and the mini bar and uh, all of this great new wine coverage that's been coming out on Punch uh, that I'm such a big fan of. I read every single Punch wine article. Um, well, welcome back to In the Drink, first of all.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: Uh, let's start. Uh, let's start with chatting about the minibar. I'm holding it right now. There's actually a copy in the uh, in the Heritage Radio. Uh, I want to call this a studio. Uh, this is a studio. But I think it's
2: <laughs> like a sweat lodge more than a studio. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, so those are, for those of you who haven't ever been to uh, Roberta's, we're, we're actually in two shipping containers that are lined with cedar. Well, it's called cedar, mm-hmm. some sort of wood, and it does look like uh, looks like a sauna.
0: Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: Um, but we record, you know, this is I think seven years of Heritage Radio or eight years, and uh, anyway, there's a, there's a whole bar inside of one of the shipping containers, and the uh, the mini bar book was prominently featured. Uh, it is beautiful. It's a hundred essential cocktail recipes from the editors of Punch. Um, tell us about how this book came to be, please.
2: Yeah, so it's a tiny little box set that sort of fits in the palm of your hand, um, if you have hands that size, but it is organized by uh, spirit or liqueur or wine. So we've got Amaro, Sherry, Champagne, Whiskey, Tequila and Mezcal, etc., And for us, you know, part of our our book program, it either works in two ways. So um, our two books, we do two books a year with 10 speed. And sometimes those books are are a product of trends that we see in the market. Um, Spritz is a great example of that. We were like, all of a sudden, we're seeing tons of Spritzes everywhere. How do we create a printed product as a digital magazine on a faster timeline than a book publisher might? And so that's sort of our MO when it comes to our book production. It also works the other way, where we take uh, content that we've produced for the site that we feel like can actually translate nicely into printed format, whether that is a gift product like Minibar or a book. So Minibar was of that second ilk. Um, So we took a bunch of the recipes on the site that we felt were important, um, essential, if you will, So mostly classics and then modern classics. And we wanted to organize them by category and then create little booklets where you could also write your own recipes down. So um, and there's in the back of each of those, it's like a little worksheet area where you can like have like, you know, your notes either on the recipes in the booklet or your notes on, you know, riffs. So the idea was here are the essential classic cocktails, but here are also modern classics that evolved from them. Take these and then make your own. Um, but, uh, we use the same illustrator that I used for Spritz, which I wrote with Leslie Pariseau, um, came out a couple of years ago. His name's Matt Allen. Um, he works with us a lot on punch. Uh, and he's, you know, we've, we work with, you know, about five to seven, depending on, on what we're doing, core illustrators for punch. And Matt is somebody who has really helped, um, create the look and feel for the site.
1: And so how does, uh, how does the process work, um, like what? Making a book. Like making a book. Um, I mean, you, because at this point, uh, these are uh, articles that, the recipes that you've already published, mm-hmm. right? So, um, how do you go about choosing them? Mm-hmm. How do you go about? You know, coordinating with the illustrators as as it fall on on you. Do you bring in some other people, how does this work?
2: In this case, we worked with Potter Gift, which is po- uh, Clarkson Potter. It's a publisher in New York. Um, they're basically sort of the sister publisher to Ten Speed Press, which is out in Berkeley. Um, and we worked with Potter Gift to basically concept this. Um, worked with the art director for Potter Gift on all of the illustration. We're heavily involved in that in that process. And then as it the nuts and bolts of it with the recipes, we look at the stuff that's on. On the site digitally, and sometimes it's a it's an easy slot in, and other times we have to make adjustments where we cut things down, we change the voice. Um, you know, a lot of the recipes that are in here were published on Punch over the course of five years. Mm-hmm. So, um, you when you put them all together, you know, you want to make sure that the tone, you know, for example, is consistent throughout. So we took all those recipes. As a group, we sort of narrowed them down to our core 100, um, and then wrote, you know, a introduction to each of the categories, very short within each book.
1: Well, I have to say, this is, a, I think, it's really beautiful, and I think like you get a lot in a small project yeah. in a small product you know for a uh, if you have a small new york apartment uh, this would fit really nicely into it it's not like a really big book but you, you there's just there's just a ton of stuff there's these 10 little books even the vodka one like that seems appealing and alluring to me i only you guys could get me <laughs> excited about drinking vodka and working on some of those recipes
2: there's so good drinks in there and you know for us too it's important to make sure that these recipes were not complicated um, so there's very few of them have sub recipes and by sub recipes, I mean like a syrup, for example, outside of your, your simple syrup. So a lot of the cocktail books that are in the market right now, I think it speaks to how far we've come in cocktails that they're quite complicated. I don't know if you've seen the aviary cocktail book, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are drinks that have like, you know, 20 ingredients. It's like in trying
1: to cook out of the 11 Madison park cookbook. Correct. You, know, you, you just can't do yeah. it at home. It's, it takes so much work.
2: Yeah. yeah. And so we felt like, you know, there's, there's, I think the market is kind of swinging back around where people are looking for stuff that's really accessible. Um, and that was sort of the, the, the aim with this, with this one.
1: And if you just use three or four good quality ingredients, yeah. liquors and, or fresh juice, it's going to be delicious.
2: You shouldn't need 10, 10 bottles of something to make a cocktail. And for most of these, it's like you have that core, you know, whether it's a bottle of tequila and some fresh juice, you should be able to make most of the drinks in here, more or less.
1: Yeah, I think it's unrealistic for most people. I know you as an editor-in-chief of a of a drinks lifestyle publication, you probably have hundreds of bottles at home, but most people, not so much.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have basically half of an office dedicated to, to bottles, and it's just not feasible if you live in New York to have that kind of inventory.
1: So how do you, at this point... Um, divide your time between all of the exciting projects that are going on at at Punch and uh, um I you know you're you're working on these two books a year more or less mm-hmm. uh Punch is, seems like it's really expanding and growing and you have just greater and greater writers that are joining you um you have you've started some new wine coverage which I want to talk about mm-hmm. in a little bit but what are what's the, the life like for Talia now
2: it's it's kind of different for all of us every day. Um, we've got you know obviously we're a we're primarily a digital magazine, but like most media companies today, we've got our hands in a bunch of different stuff. So that's the books, it's the products like mini bar. We're also doing a line of socks. We're working on a print magazine that will come out twice a year. That's a journal. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that you know that we're able to do and I think for us what's exciting is that we've spent you know there was a lot of blood sweat and tears that went into building this brand um, and now that together we've as a team built this brand we're like okay well what can we do with it and the opportunities that you know it's it's about taking the right opportunities and, and um, you know giving people you know a, an experience of the brand that's outside of the web and that includes events as well so I think for all of us it's like you know yesterday Lizzie who's our art director we spent you know a couple hours working on a mock-up for the print magazine and and you know then we'll switch from that to to working on you know this women's empowerment tour that we're doing with Bacardi and so there's a lot of there's a lot of different stuff every day and so you know the great thing about the team is everybody's nimble and everyone is a kind of aware of what each person is working on and we're always working together and that's the beauty of I think a small team
1: mm mm-hmm. and Tell us a little bit more about the print publication, <laughs> if you can. I mean, what is the what was the impetus for it? Do you think, uh, I guess, everyone, even if you're not in the you know publishing industry, you hear about the challenges the of print. <laughs> and of, with print. Yeah, and is this, is it something that's more just like an extension and uh, you know a way for people to hold and touch, punch in, mm-hmm. in their in their house, or do you think it's like a viable business on on its own?
2: We see it more as not not necessarily a, a business play for us. It's more of a brand extension. We mm-hmm. from the very beginning, you know, we being associated with Ten Speed Press and Penguin Random House. Um, Which is this incredible book publisher? You know, we have the ability and access to creating print products. And so, a print magazine, a journal, you know, it's not going to be something that comes out monthly, twice a year, Um, and they'll be themed and they're meant to be collectible items. And so, there's so much content we create for Punch, super visual, um, that we feel translates directly to a print magazine. And all the content that lives in this print magazine will be separate from the site, but you'll find that content still ports into Punch punchdrink.com, but it'll be in a different way. So we'll do a long form story in Mexico and maybe the video will appear on punch. So we're trying to find ways to kind of split these things up and have them feed each other. Um, but to answer your question, I mean, the, the print magazine is really, you know, for us, we feel like our content and what we do really translates well into that format and we can create something that feels evergreen and collectible for, you know, fans of the site.
1: Well, the, the, I'm a fan of the site. The site is beautiful, but also the things that you uh, that are physical that we can hold the books that you guys have published are really beautiful as well. And so I'm really excited for for this to come out. It's going to be it's, it's just going to be awesome. Um, I want to talk to you more about your wine coverage because when Punch started, um, uh, there was definitely a focus more on spirits and mm-hmm. the culture of spirits. There was a lot of Articles trying to find the uh, terroir of, of liquor, which mm-hmm. was so interesting. Um, but as someone who loves, I have to admit, I love wine even more than, uh, <laughs> than, than spirits. And no, I do. I do love spirits as well. I know that you worked in wine before, uh, before all of this. Um, tell us about how, uh, your, you know, the, the, your foray into, into writing about or publishing wine articles on wine and what, what that's been like
2: yeah I mean the funny thing is is that I came from wine and and I think punch is is uh, you know I, we you know people are aware of our wine coverage. We've got John Bonnet, who is this like incredible wine writer who came from the San Francisco Chronicle was a critic there um, and we've been very lucky to have him essentially lead our wine content. But I think when people think about punch, they think about cocktails and spirits primarily. Um, and we've made a real effort over the last couple of years to really increase the coverage on wine and and make it more of a destination for people who, you know, are already. We see punch as like there's a bunch of different access points. It's called punch for a reason. Like everyone should be able to come, kind of dip a cup in, get some, take away something from the site. But um, with wine, um, it's tough. It's tough to create content that, you know, it feels really accessible and easy and is for that person who's just exploring um, versus somebody who's the already converted. So I think we do a, an excellent job of creating content for folks who are already interested in wine and looking to go deeper. And John is the person who leads that. Um, we've also got Zach Sussman and Megan Krigbaum who are sort of leading that other end of the spectrum, primarily Megan, who is so good at creating wine content that feels accessible without dumbing it down, which is there is a, I mean, you know better than anybody. It's the same thing when you're talking about wine in a restaurant, like there's a fine line between talking down to people and, and giving them information that they feel like they can connect to if they don't have all the background information that we are privileged to have. So uh, it's an ongoing for us. It's like, for me, it's, it's the hardest category to create content for. I mean, cocktails easy. You can go home, you can make something, Um, You can't go home and make make a bottle of wine. Right. And even with beer, there's this whole homebrewing culture. It's interactive. It feels DIY. You can experience it yourself. Wine is something that by nature of what it is like there isn't that that personal connection. You can't kind of get your hands dirty with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it changes so often that it's really difficult to continue to create content um, and keep up with that, whereas spirits are standardized to a degree.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you can have a couple of ingredients in the house and you can make that recipe and vodka or the gin is going to taste the same this year as next year, but mm-hmm. yeah, if you write about a particular vintage of wine, it'll taste that way when maybe when the article comes out, but even that vintage will taste different mm-hmm. in, you know, in a few years and mm-hmm. certainly the next vintage will be different. Um, but I think you've done a masterful job of it. Like the, the coverage is just, is just fantastic. I love John's new article on Beaujolais. Um, it's really, it's really beautiful. It's well-written. And, uh, so why, um, uh, what what are some of the the wine topics that you know uh, maybe you want to write about but haven't been able to to write about yet? Uh, I was really happy actually to see that you guys write about orange wine. You and I had a big debate oh, yeah. on orange wine. <laughs> was that was that a hard one for you to sort of yeah. green light? Uh. I
2: mean, look, like I think that orange wine has has come a long way, and I think that's been what was validating about that. I mean, John. So John does these these categorical kind of insiders guide, which is like everything you need to know about this thing right now. So it's mm-hmm. not like it feel, it's, it's giving you a window into the zeitgeist. It's answering the question, in the case of Beaujolais, like why is Beaujolais this juggernaut? Like why, is, why does it seem like Gamay is everywhere, and it is everywhere? Um, and so he used that to explain the flavor profile of Beaujolais and what it represents and why it feels so relevant to wine culture right now. In the case of orange wine, we saw this like crazy explosion of orange wines in the market after the sort of initial thrust from the guys in, in Friuli in Slovenia um, who are the the real practitioners of this, and obviously the the folks down in Georgia, who are arguably the you know they were the the birthplace of of this style of winemaking, um, but it has become something that you find literally in every corner of the globe. So we wanted to say, okay, well, you know, what is what is has that benefited this category, or are the guys who like guys and girls who came out and and you know were the the sort of first to market for these wines, are they still the best? Um, And I, you know, I I still have a soft spot for Bea. For example, Paulo Bea's uh, Santa Chiara. I still think that's like one of the great examples of orange wine. I think Grovner and Damian and Radicon are still to me, the benchmarks. Um, but there's plenty of others. Like we found a wine from Czechoslovakia, for example, the Czech Republic. And, uh, you know, that that was an incredible example of orange wine. So um, no, I think that what what happened was that a lot of the wine started to taste the same. But when you kind of put them all together, you do see, yes, it's something that leads, the wine that leads with its, its technique. Um, but there are real, you know, sort of regional differences. So it was a, you know, it was a reminder that, you know, your your that things change really dramatically in wine over the course of five years. You know,
1: so it seems that the publication is in a lot of ways reflecting the interests of what some of the restaurants and sommeliers and and winemakers who you, who you like are are doing. Like, how much of it is uh, reflecting what's out there in the public and giving the public what they what they want, and how much of it is you know coming from stuff that that you guys have your own personal interest on.
2: I think with, especially specifically with John's coverage, it's the, an effort to lead the conversation. And, and I think he's somebody who is ca- capable of doing that. And he's, you know, he's literally in France, like every three weeks, you know, and he's writing a book about the new French wine and he was, you know, so embedded in California. Um, so his column, really the point there is to lead the conversation about wine culture, where it's going and what's happening in each region. Um, whereas, you know, I think some of the other coverage that we do is response to what we see the audience is looking for and I think as an, as an editor and running a magazine like you want to have a healthy balance of both those things you never want to be captive to your audience you want to still be out there and, and taking chances and doing things that you believe in whether or not you think they're going to you know be backed up by analytics um, so we we try to continue to, to maintain that, that point of view and saying we're going to respond give people what they want but we're also going to continue to do the stuff that even if it doesn't perform as well as some of that other content we're still going to
1: do it yeah and it seems to me that John is in my opinion one of the best wine journalists alive today it's yeah. like you have sort of a, a dream team there where everyone is sort of a, a superstar and and you have Michael Jordan also <laughs> it, it, it's yeah sort
2: of, no it, we're lucky
1: it's really amazing uh, I guess the one topic that keeps being brought up and is sort of fresh on my mind is a natural wine topic and I've spoken with John uh, quite a few times. I think we have him and I have a a similar view on natural wine, but, uh, I imagine it's something that your readers are very interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a hot, a hot topic these Mm -hmm. days, a raw wine fair just, just finished here in New York. And it was just so slammed. It seemed like there were so many people Mm -hmm. who, who went to it. How do you sort of handle this, this topic that, um, people feel I think they feel pretty emotional about Mm -hmm. they feel pretty charged either for it or or against it. Um, How do you guys look at handling it?
2: I mean, the one thing that we try not to do is 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 treat it like fashion, um, and I think that that is a lot of what you're kind of seeing out there is like the use of that word and the use of that angle and content um, as a as a way of getting clicks, and certainly it does. But I I think that we have to take a harder look at at what it means. It isn't something to just throw out there and be like five natural wines for your whatever barbecue. It's more like what is it, and is. We've tackled this conversation about what is natural, right, and what wines are worthy. I think the wines, like with anything, like they have to be able to stand up to criticism in the same way any other wine would. Um, And I think that the net the net effect of the natural wine movement is incredibly positive. And I wouldn't take anything back. I think now we're at a point where we have to to ask some questions about, you know, what what wines are we willing to put on a pedestal? and, And what wines are we, you know, are we, you know, responsibly going to question their Level of quality, and um, you know, I think that I mean John wrote an article about Fausto. I think Fausto, in terms of its point of view with wine, is is uh, you know a middle way between, and that's the that was the headline for the piece, and what the you know John's angle with describing what you do. But like you know, when when the two of us were coming up in wine, and this is you know ten years ago now, um, even earlier than that. We used to just call these wines traditional, right? Like there wasn't, natural wasn't like a word that we used. It was just wines that were made thoughtfully, you know, that were respective of their land and reflective of people in the place. Um, And I think that what's ultimately what we're trying to say with natural wine, but the conversation has sort of gotten away from us a little bit. Um, And we got too caught up in the minutia of some of these production processes. and, And then factions started breaking out between these things where I don't think that like, you know, your preference or my preference for wine has changed. And you have plenty of natural wine on your list and plenty of wines that, you know, might not be called natural or some people call them natural. Other people don't. Um, And I think we're just getting a little caught up in the semantics and we're forgetting like, look, it just has to taste good. And, and further to that, like, it's not just about taste. It's also about, you know, people doing the right things. And, um, and I, I think that, you know, we should maybe get away from the politics of the whole thing. But you know, I don't think that's going anywhere for now. Yeah,
1: I, I totally agree with you, and uh, that's the 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 challenging thing about it is I think what you what you hit on, or there probably are some wines where everyone would agree, like is are, they're they're the natural wines yeah. right there, like the all the way, but then there's these like wines that are kind of in the middle where even like Nicolas Jolie Mm -hmm. would not be allowed to present his wines at the raw Mm -hmm. fair. He is the, you know, the person who's credited with starting the biodynamic movement in wine. Mm -hmm. uh, But he uses a little bit too much sulfur. Mm -hmm. And so like, to me, those wines seem like, like he's doing a good thing. Like he is, and if, if, uh, if farming without chemicals was, uh, you know, if there's a positive moral thing that you could do, if that, if that is, mm-hmm. then, then he is doing it right. He's doing it in the right way, but it's not natural enough for, mm-hmm. for the natural wine. So that's, that's the confusing and challenging thing about it
2: it's like what are we doing when we're saying that the heroes of this the early heroes of this movement or the people who helped seed this movement are no longer welcome and I think that is something where you gotta say are we just are we just taking this thing too far
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a really good point uh, but on that really good point we're gonna take a little break and uh, I'm gonna let, let it sink in a little bit <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor
0: Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food. And my favorite cookware is the 8-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Not only because I use it constantly, but because cabinet space is at a premium in New York City kitchens. My boyfriend and I were gifted our Le Creuset by his family last Christmas, and it was the first piece of enameled cookware we'd ever owned. I'd been fawning over the marine blue color, especially when I realized there were only a few left in stock. When we unwrapped the box, we were pleasantly surprised to see how big this thing was. I immediately started imagining what I could cook roast chicken, Texas-style chili, a leg of lamb, or my favorite, a huge batch of Marcella Hazan's Bolognese. Head to LeCrusade.com HRN, that's lecreuse dot HRN, to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new LeCrusade cookbook with the code HRN.
1: All right, we're back with Tali bioki the editor-in-chief of Punch, and uh and we were talking about their wine coverage. Um, what, do you, what are you guys working on right now in terms of wine coverage?
2: We're actually working on a pretty big project that that John is spearheading, which is um, basically the the fifty essential wine list in America. Um, TBD on the name of that, but that's what we're calling it internally. Um, and that will change quarterly. So it's an effort to really highlight folks around the country that are doing doing really good work, and not just on the coast, not just San Francisco, LA, New York, but like in the middle of the country, in smaller markets, in places like louisville or places like you know i mean austin texas isn't a small market but you know people outside of the the main cities um and you know everybody on the team is is helping on the back end with that megan is involved in the project as well um so you know we're really excited to to release that and and keep it up to date and we built a, a new recipe template to support this project and um, down the line, we'll probably do the same thing with with cocktail bars as well, but we're going to kick it off with wine.
1: And how is he going about doing the the research? Of how do you, how does he find out about the best wine list in Louisville, Kentucky, or something like that?
2: So it's basically everybody pooling together their group of contacts um, in the in the in the wine space, and and just calling in tons and tons of wine lists. Because as I'm sure a lot of people realize, there's not a lot of them online, which can be a real pain in the neck. Um, So this has been a pretty cumbersome process. It's like calling a list of Mm -hmm. like 180 places, you know, of the initial list down to 50, which is incredibly challenging. And obviously there's going to be people who are going to be left off that like, you know, that are, that are worth being mentioned. So it's figuring out how to handle that. But, you know, there's certain people in New York who are going to have to be cut, for example, you know, to make way for somebody in a smaller market who's doing hard work and isn't getting the recognition.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. As a, as someone who owns a restaurant updates our online
2: yes, thank wine you list, much. it is
1: actually a lot of work. Uh, you know, we, we made sort of a decision from the beginning not to do a PDF wine list on our website because I always felt that it was a little like that extra step of downloading it was Mm -hmm. a little annoying. And so we have a, it's just integrated into our website, but that means that every week I spend about 45 minutes Mm -hmm. updating the website online. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so it's not, and we work with so many small production wines Mm -hmm. that our list is just constantly, constantly changing. Uh, so it's not always exactly. I try to remove the eighty sixes every, every night so that, uh, right when we first opened, we had a sommelier come in from a restaurant in Manhattan. She saw a wine on our list and uh, uh, on our website, and she came in for that specific wine oh, and at eighty six the night before. And since then, I always just try to remove at least remove the eighty sixes uh, yeah. or the wines that have sold out the night before uh, from the website. But um, yeah, I think that's that's a lot of that's that's a lot of work for him to go through and. Uh, and, and get all those. Is there, is there a a wine hub that is surprising where, you know, not New York, San Francisco, Chicago, uh, LA somewhere where there's a lot of good wine that's are like, Oh, I didn't think we'd actually have multiple entries from this place.
2: I mean, I think that, that Seattle and Portland have both, I mean, these are not small cities, but Seattle and Portland have always had like a healthy wine scene. Um, and, and, you know, like some West places coast have, Portland or East coast Portland, A uh, West coast, mm-hmm. West coast Portland. Um, there are some places of course in, in East coast Portland as well, but, um, but I think both those cities have always had like a really healthy wine, you know, culture, um, and, uh, you know, an er- early adopters of, of natural wine and, and have found their own way to represent those wines um so and like in a way that like feels really unpretentious so it's always it's always nice to see that that there's really a unique culture in in both those places i would say um and then of course like you know there's there's plenty going on in in texas and it's not just steakhouses obviously um even in a place like dallas so um so yeah i, I think it's just it's pretty exciting to see really, really small markets that are, are, you know, that could be a conversation leader, even in a place like New York.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, have you made the final cut yet? Or are you still sort of debating over?
2: Still debating. I okay. think there's like, if there's a final, there's a final like five that, that are TBD and, and some of the bigger markets are obviously the hardest, like LA and New York are really hard because there's, there is like a glut of, of great, you know, talent in both those places, especially in New York. Um, and not just because I'm biased because I live here, but um, but like, how do you how do you choose just just four lists in a place like New York? I mean, so the thing, the good thing about it is that it will change quarterly, so there's there's an opportunity to take a closer look at every single thing every time it's updated and bring some of those folks who um, might not have made the first first cut into the fold.
1: Now I mean, now I want to ask you like, what are some of your favorite wine lists? But I don't want you to I feel like reveal. you have to give it away and reveal it. Uh, I'm just, maybe I'll ask you offline. But. I
2: really love Fausto. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but it is true. I mean, it's one of the one of the best wine lists to to come up in in uh, in recent memory, and I I mean that I mean that uh, for real. But yeah, and it's. I don't know. I mean, we can always use use more wine lists. I love I love Four Horsemen in Williamsburg. It's my neighborhood, but like I think they're killing it, and they have from day one. It's just a tremendously enjoyable place to drink. Maison Premier quietly a fantastic place to drink wine, um, even though it's known for cocktails. So um, there's just a there's a lot of awesome stuff ha- hiding in plain hey, sight.
1: When, when Maison Premier put on like a dozen or two dozen Muscadets, I was like, oh my god, this yeah. place is awesome. Yeah, and they're great. And yeah. great
2: champagne list. So it's and like if you're every like yeah. in the hood and you really want a great bottle of champagne, and some oysters, like that's your spot.
1: Perfect. And the food at four horsemen is like top notch. I yeah. think it's so delicious.
2: It's like not, I mean the thing, the fact that people call it a wine bar, it's like not even a wine bar. It's mm-hmm. like something else entirely, which is why I love it.
1: I agree. You're lucky to live close to yeah, it.
2: Yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> you're really lucky. And, and what, uh, what about the next series of books? Can you talk about any, any new book that, that you're working on?
2: Yeah, so we've got... the we just had uh, another book come out called Winter Drinks um, which is under the punch uh, it's by the editors of Punch another one um, and that is similar to this project it was us kind of going through this, the recipes on the site that we think are are our favorites in the winter category um, and then you know creating a bunch of recipes ourselves in house and this a- the angle for this book was also for it to be user you know user friendly it's meant for somebody who's kind of just getting into cocktails um, so nothing is you know there's only a few syrups that you would have to make to make these drinks just super easy and we tried to limit the number of ingredients that you would have to buy to stock your quote-unquote winter bar um so using fewer ingredients for you know basically a, an, another you know 100 recipes so mm. um that just came out and then we've got i'm really excited in in 2020 we'll have two wine books that come out under the punch and print um and we're working with Zachary Assessment on both of those. Um, one is called The Essential Wine Book, um, and that is part of a series that we've done. We've done The Essential Bar Book, The Essential Cocktail Book, and then wine um, will hit in in the fall of 2020. And then we're also doing a sparkling wine book with, with Zach as well.
1: Oh, that's great. And yeah. are, are you working on any – do you foresee yourself doing any books uh, – Without the editors, you've you know you've written Cherry, which is so such a great book. I've I've read it cover to cover. Um, do, you, do you picture that being part of what you'll do at some point?
2: I think for for drinks books, um, for the moment, I'm I'm gonna probably just just wait it out and and focus on punch for the minute and um, and who knows like down the line if there's something that feels like a topic that I really want to get my hands dirty uh, on then 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 that will be it. But right now I'm really enjoying being kind of the project manager, project editor, um, and collaborating with the editors at Ten Speed for these books and getting this imprint sort of you know within within Ten Speed off mm-hmm. the ground and and rolling and. Um, and making sure that all these books, like f- you know, really feel like punch, um, and, and that's like a full time And Ten Speed job.
1: publishes Punch as well. Yeah, right. Exactly. And what what is that relationship like? What, it seems like that would give you a lot of great resources.
2: So, it, so I launched the site with with Aaron um, Weiner, and he runs both Ten Speed, Clarkson Potter, Potter Gift, Harmony. He basically runs illustrated publishing for. For Crown, which is a division of of Penguin Random House, mm-hmm. um, and I mean he has been a, a mentor to me from the beginning, along with Lorena Jones, who's also a publisher at Ten Speed. So it's a lot of just you know they they act as advisors um, to me and to the rest of the team on on kind of what we're doing within the space, and you know they come from book publishing, but they're just so savvy about publishing in general. So like a lot of that advice does translate to the web. So I'm incredibly fortunate to have you know two of the best minds in publishing that that get to be mentors to to punch
1: that's fantastic yeah oh that's so great well talia it's been such a pleasure to have you back on in the drink you're always welcome here
2: thank you i'm I'm going for five
1: we're going for five (laughs) (laughs) we need a couple more uh a couple more and we'll get you that drinking jacket which you've well earned uh, thank you and i really encourage everyone to pick up the mini bar 100 essential cocktail recipes it is the perfect holiday gift. Uh, It will fit on anyone's bar, no matter how many it is. Uh, (laughs) I love it. It makes me actually excited to look into the vodka recipes, which I never thought I would say. Um, And it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to hold. The illustration is beautiful. The recipes are great. I love it. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, continue to uh, read all of Punch's wine Writing, I share. I share. I find that I'm sharing those articles with my staff, with my, you know, with uh, with my friends. Um, the writing has just been has been so great. Uh, they're they're relevant, uh, and uh, I love what you guys are doing. So thank you, thanks Talia, Appreciate thanks it. to all of you guys for listening. Uh, I want to thank uh, Matt, who's our engineer, Jasmine Molly, who produced the show, Rennie Lopez, who did our theme music. If you like In The Drink, please uh, subscribe and app Apple Podcasts or wherever you list, like to listen to podcasts and leave us a review that helps us get the word out about In The Drink. Uh, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.